0: hello hello! welcome back to eco chic my name is laura diaz and it is great to have you here today today's episode is a conversation with dr samantha montano that was originally published on eco chic in december of 2021 i'm excited to rewind to this episode because we've got a lot of new listeners that may not have heard this and a couple of weeks ago i shared an episode called what is disaster capitalism which really spoke to the exploitation of disasters, especially through the lens of recovery efforts, the aftermath of the tragic wildfires in Hawaii earlier this summer. And again, really examining the capitalism, stepping in there, really exploitive real estate practices. So if you're interested in that and haven't listened to that episode, it was about two weeks ago. Again, it's called, What is Disaster Capitalism? While that episode really seeks to explain the concept and introduce us to the idea of disaster capitalism from kind of a high level perspective, we do zoom in on a case study that is New Orleans and the levee failure and the aftermath of that tragedy as well and how disaster capitalism really showed up in that geography. Now, I wanna take it one step further because while that episode was explaining the concept, showing a case study, today's episode really zooms in on disaster management. And I think that this is a really cool conversation to have because it speaks to the wider experience of a disaster. Disasters are not only about the aftermath, they're really about the preparation, the anticipation. And Dr. Samantha Montano is really the expert on disaster management. Dr. Montano is an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. And she is also the author of Disasterology, Dispatches from the Frontlines of the Climate Crisis, which was published in 2021 by Park Rowe. She earned her BS in psychology from Loyola University, New Orleans, and her MS and PhD in emergency management from North Dakota State University. I am really, really proud of this episode, and it's one that I mark as a conversation I'm really proud to have published on this show because it speaks to both the personal and the more systemic experience, I suppose, of disasters. Disasterology is a book that I feel is constantly suggested whenever someone discusses disaster management. It is really the modern handbook, the way that we are understanding disasters as common folk, because the book is part memoir, part disaster management 101. And I think what's so cool about that format because it is part memoir, it gives us a very personal understanding to disaster systems. So Dr. Montano in the book discusses her experience with the Joplin tornado aftermath. She discusses New Orleans and the levee failure, and then kind of unpacks other systems, again, through that more personal lens. I also have to say here, this episode is all thanks to our audience member, our very good friend Florencia. Florencia commented on a video a couple of weeks ago after that Disaster Capitalism episode recommending the book, Disasterology, and I was like, oh, this is our time to rewind this conversation. Today's conversation with Dr. Samantha Montano really overviews what got her first interested in disasters and then what disaster management actually is. What are the phases of disaster management? What can go wrong in each phase of this management system? What are the gaps in our current systems, legally, politically, when it comes to actively preparing for disasters and mitigating disasters? that are often incorrectly referred to as natural disasters. I think that was one of my personal favorite takeaways from this episode. We also dig in this conversation a little deeper into the mismanagement of the COVID catastrophe, which I feel like is almost more powerful in retrospect a couple of years out of deep, deep COVID. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you learned something. Make sure you share it with a friend, share it on your Instagram story. Double check that you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening to this show today, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And while you're double checking that, make sure that you rate and review the show wherever you're listening as well. It really helps us out. With that, let's jump into today's conversation with Dr. Samantha Montano, all on disasterology. I would love to open up our conversation today with a little bit of insight on how you sparked interest in this very specific field of disaster management. Like, what was your light bulb moment into your career field?
1: So the first time that I really became involved in a disaster was in New Orleans, post Katrina and the levee failure. I went to the city. I grew up on the East Coast, but I went to the city Uh, in the aftermath to help gut homes, rebuild homes, uh, just on like a week-long volunteer trip. And I got there and I was completely astounded by the extent of the damage, but also specifically the extent of help that was needed and how, even though there were thousands of people there volunteering and New Orleanians were obviously working nonstop on recovery efforts, there was still so much that had not even begun to be addressed yet months later. And so I ended up moving to New Orleans, which was maybe like a bit of an extreme reaction, (laughs) but I moved to the city and started working with a whole bunch of different recovery nonprofits doing just all kinds of recovery work throughout the city. Um, and I lived there for four years while I did my undergrad And while I was there, the BP oil disaster happened along the coast. And so I had this other kind of like front row seat for, uh, you know, another huge disaster in this region, uh, which was the first time that I really started to kind of see an actual response to a disaster unfold as opposed to just the recovery. You know, I just started noticing things like how ineffective the response and recovery was, how inefficient it was. Uh, the injustices that were permeating how people were able to move through these systems, and I started to kind of think about disasters more broadly. To that point, I had just been very like hyper focused on the city of New Orleans and Katrina specifically. And once I saw BP happen, I went to Joplin, Missouri, after their tornado, some other disasters around the country. I started seeing like, oh, this is a national problem. Like we are not managing these events in the way that like we probably should be. Like people are, are being harmed in how we are managing these events. And so this needs to change. And so that was kind of my awakening that emergency management was even a thing that existed and that it was a system and that because it's a system policy really matters. And there's all of these complexities within that, which I think when a lot of people think of disasters, that isn't necessarily the first thing that we think of. Uh, And so yeah, that's kind of how this all started.
0: When you were saying that you went from New Orleans to Joplin, Missouri, I immediately thought of the movie Twister and you're kind of like the opposite of what those guys were. Like you were there not to chase the storm, but to chase like the management of the storm, which is kind of a funny idea. Yeah. Oh, I have
1: absolutely no interest in being anywhere near a tornado that's happening. <laughs> like none at all. I want to be as far away from it as possible. No, thank you.
0: Yeah. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I want to talk a little bit about the word management, because you just said there was a point where you didn't even know emergency management was a thing. You were mentioning also there's responses that are done well, responses that are not done well. So what is the difference actually between management and response?
1: Yeah. So, well, in emergency management broadly, the like uh, the, like the spectrum of things that we're supposed to be doing in emergency management encompasses... What we call the four phases of disaster. So we have response, which is where you're doing those life-saving measures. It's that like time period, right, as the disaster has happened. Uh, You have recovery, which is what comes after the rebuilding, putting everything back together. Before the event happens, you have preparedness, so everything you're doing to ready yourself to respond, to recover, and then you have mitigation, which is anything you're doing to try and prevent that disaster from happening if. I know your audience is more oriented towards climate change. So like climate adaptation is very close to how we talk about hazard mitigation in our field. So that's like the full spectrum of emergency management. And so if we're doing effective management, that means that we are being really proactive and preventing disasters from happening ahead of time through mitigation. We are doing things to prepare ourselves, our communities, for those events that you know, we can't prevent or that we don't see coming. Uh, and then when those events do happen, we are responding in a way that is effective, efficient, just where people's needs are being met, where we're doing everything we can to save lives in that response time period. And then kind of same thing in recovery, moving people through the recovery process as quickly as possible. So they're not kind of trapped in this recovery phase for, you know, multiple years, if not longer. Management, I think you can kind of think about it as kind of the overarching of all of these different tasks that have to be done. But response is what most people see or think about when they think of disaster. It's like, what is happening in the disaster movies? It's when CNN is covering something 24-7. It's when it's trending on Twitter. That is usually that response time period. And so when people hear emergency management, they tend to equate that with response and kind of don't really think about the recovery or the preparedness or the mitigation, which are you know at least equally as important as that actual response time period.
0: I think when it comes to response and recovery, there is also this level of quality control that can be forgotten about. And especially in the context of New Orleans, I'm thinking of the Lord. Lower yeah. And I feel like that's an interesting tale of like recovery and quality control in retrospect of like homes that were not properly built or rebuilt and um this kind of pouring in of celebrity philanthropy dollars and saying like I helped solve this problem and then the follow-through is not always necessarily there so recovery as a topic is interesting because in some sense there will always be people who want to help and be the do-gooders but actually following through and doing it well is a totally different issue
1: Yeah, you know, that's one of the challenges with how our emergency management system is set up. We use, particularly in recovery, we use what we call a limited intervention model, which not to get too technical here, but it essentially just means that the government is intentionally limited in their involvement of how people go through recovery they want to do kind of as little as possible to the extent that government is involved they're going to be primarily focused on you know rebuilding infrastructure utilities kind of those public services that you know make up our communities which is obviously really important it needs to be done but in terms of like being an individual who's lost their house in that disaster there are actually relatively few resources from government. If depending, there's like all kinds of eligibility that you have to kind of like navigate through here. Some people are getting some funding from FEMA, but it's usually kind of on average for an average disaster, a couple thousand dollars. It is not as much as people think it is. And it's not enough for people to rebuild a house, for example. And so that, Means that w- without that help from government, individuals on their own, many do not have enough in savings or do not have good insurance to be able to cover these costs themselves, which leaves the nonprofit sector to fill this gap. And a lot of people kind of perceive the, you know, prevalence of nonprofits during recovery as almost being a sign that the emergency management system has failed when in reality, that's how the system was designed. That's how the federal government designed this system. So we see you know, this big presence from the nonprofit sector and like, also from, from mutual aid groups and kind of more informal um, help neighbor to neighbor that happens during recovery, which is great, right? A lot of those people are doing really, really great work, but because they're the nonprofit sector, they're not being coordinated by anybody usually. These are individual groups making their own decisions. Sometimes they will volunteer to coordinate with other organizations or tie in with government. But they don't have to. There's no law that says they have to. And you're right, there is essentially no oversight of these organizations or any of these kind of like quote unquote helpers that are coming into these communities, uh, which uh, again, some of them are doing really great work, but it also definitely opens the door for organizations to kind of overpromise what they're going to do in the recovery and kind of in that moment, right after a disaster happens, there's a lot of like, you know, everyone's really gun hoed to go and, and help and makes all these promises and has all these big dreams and these big visions and the reality of recovery is um, kind of much more of a slog that they find they have to walk through Um, and they don't always have those resources they don't always have the ability to fulfill those promises that they've made Uh, and then without that kind of accountability from government or honestly even accountability from media (laughs) kind of what what they choose to do is what we get.
0: It's interesting to say what they choose to do is what we get because, on the mitigation side, especially thinking about the climate crisis in the context of disasters, we know that storms are getting stronger and we know that the infrastructure in America is aging largely. So, it is very hard to kind of see a government official justifying big infrastructure investments when the storm hasn't happened yet or like the big once in a lifetime experience already happened. So, what are the chances we have another? Snowmageddon or whatever it is. So on the flip side, on the preparation for the potential of a disaster, what are the holes there? Like why is it that we don't want to yet invest in like heavy infrastructure or or rebuilding efforts before they really need to be done?
1: Well, when you're looking at kind of the mitigation research here from our field, there's a couple kind of common issues here. One is that Politicians generally don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, this is true generally, but specifically with emergency management and even more specifically with mitigation and preparedness. Um, you know, we see politicians, uh, you know, even people who believe in climate change and like want to take climate action, right? You hear them use terms like disaster resilience and, uh, you know, we're going to, um I hate to use this one now because it means something else, but build back better is a term that actually has a very long history in the disaster context. Um, it's now been being used in a slightly different way, but uh, you know, there, there are these kind of like catchphrases that happen um, that politicians will throw into speeches that they give or even throw into policy that they're writing, like disaster resilience is, you can find that in like infrastructure policy and all of these kind of places. But it's not being used in the correct way and it's not being attached to the appropriate funding. It's not being directed towards the appropriate programs or agencies. And so, a part of this is they're kind of grasping onto these buzzwords like resilience and they're trying to kind of use those and say those as a signal of like, oh, we're acknowledging that disasters are important, that they're happening, but then that isn't tied to actual meaningful action or meaningful policy change. And so part of this is like an educational issue here. Like some of them, I my guess is that they just don't understand what they're talking about and they don't have people on their staff who understand the nuances here, which is in some ways understandable, emergency management is like a, a bit niche. So that lack of education is one issue, but also even when you do have somebody who understands and like, even at like a local level, who understands, you know, our town has a flood risk, we really need to build this levy. The reality is, is that doing those projects very often costs millions and millions of dollars. If not, like if you're a city, it's billions of dollars, right? And so, where are you going to get that money from? This is a really like complex process that they have to go through in terms of different federal agencies, different grant programs. There's all kinds of laws that they have to jump through at the state, local, and federal level to get these projects implemented, not to mention getting buy-in from the community. You need to have somebody who can actually engineer these projects that you're wanting to do in a way that is effective and accounts for f- changes to future risks through things like climate change. And so this is a really long and kind of complicated process to do mitigation and even again, kind of these more like, kind of like building a levy doesn't seem like it should necessarily be that hard to do, but it really is complicated. And for a local politician who isn't necessarily going to be in that position or be in office for more than a few years, they don't necessarily have a personal incentive to do that because they're going to be moving on by the time that that levy actually gets built, by the time that The community understands that they've benefited from this multi-million dollar levy that had to be built. It's going to be years and years down the line after they're out of office. So, from their perspective, it makes more sense for them to spend time thinking about, you know, local school reforms or fixing the potholes in people's neighborhoods because those are the things people are seeing more on a day-to-day basis and can, in their minds, influence how they're going to vote. So, the kind of incentive structure for politicians isn't quite lining up in a lot of cases.
0: I completely see that. And I think we talk about this a lot in climate change as well. Like at the end of the day, politicians are not scientists or not experts in any of these niche topics, whether it is emergency management, whether it's climate change and even school reform. Like there's a lot of work that they're being informed on to kind of tout their influence around. So At the end of the day, it's also, it's education, it's like a lot of citizen advocacy and like a lot of people calling up their congressmen and telling them what they wanna see. And of course, it makes sense that it's difficult to allocate those dollars to where they need to go. go go Quick break to tell you about Caraway. I don't know about you, but fall is a really busy season for me. Maybe it's back to school. Right now I'm dealing with a very hectic work schedule between recording the podcast and looking at all the events coming up for New York Climate Week. Plus at home in Colorado, I wanna make sure that I am spending my time as wisely as possible. I'm trying out all the fall related things before the cold really hits. I've never been more grateful that Caraway's nonstick kitchenware makes cooking an absolute breeze and cleanup as easy as ever. You've heard me talk about Caraway before and it's because I absolutely love them and truly believe that there is a Caraway for every kind of cook. We all want to be making the healthiest choices for our homes, for ourselves, and a nonstick, chemical-free ceramic coating means that food can be prepared with peace of mind, that none of those weird, hard-to-pronounce chemicals are leaching into your healthy ingredients. I have the cream set. I was just at a girlfriend's house and she has the silt green color. It's this beautiful kind of seafoam blue-green. All of the modern shades are so beautiful. They fit with whatever your design aesthetic is, and they include easy access storage solutions to keep your kitchen tidy and organized all year long. And drum roll please, we're now introducing Caraway's prep set, 10 essential knives and utensils designed for chopping better, prepping cleaner, and storing easier. If you've been thinking about trying Caraway, this is your sign. I use my Caraway set for every single meal, seriously, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like for example, this morning I made potatoes and I made eggs. I did not eat any oil for either of those dishes. Tonight I'm making fried rice yesterday i used the caraway set for a meal delivery kit and i made this really fabulous pasta sauce out of zucchinis seriously i could not believe how easy it is to clean up i feel more encouraged to cook because it is so easy to clean i think i recommend caraway in a conversation at least once a week i do believe again there's a caraway set for everyone Visit CarawayHome.com/eco to take advantage of this limited time offer for ten percent off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit CarawayHome.com/eco or use code eco at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. And that got me thinking. I hope that this isn't like too lowball of a question, but this could potentially be a very hard one. Do you have a favorite? Disaster or a favorite type of disaster? Do you have one that you're like, this is an easy fix or this is an easy one um, to manage?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um, what is like the easiest to manage or fix? Um, gosh, no one has ever asked me that. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, you know, one I think potentially could be kind of easy to address. It, I'm going to maybe some people will disagree with this. I'm going to say heat waves here. Um, in the US, I think there is a lot of potential and kind of like low hanging fruit for us in terms of how we manage heat waves when they happen, which obviously, given climate change, this is like a, a, a growing concern across the country, as we saw with the Pacific Northwest earlier this year. Um, you know, we, we are very clear about who it is that dies during heat waves, what the factors are that are influencing that, people who are elderly people who have disabilities, people who are socially isolated. We, we have a, a really good body of research on this. And because of that, because we're kind of the, the impacts of heat waves are kind of very well known, I think that there's real potential to be really proactive in reaching out to those kind of more, quote unquote, vulnerable communities And creating a better plan, a better system for how to reach those people when temperatures start rising to get them to cooling centers, to make sure that we have redundancies in electricity for certain buildings in our community. Um, And I think heat waves are kind of an interesting one for emergency management because for Uh, A long time heat waves have been perceived more as a public health issue, more so than a kind of traditional disaster, which isn't true. It is also a disaster as well as a public health issue. Um, And so this is one of those areas where emergency managers in a lot of parts of the country haven't been as involved with, because again, public health has been kind of the lead on that. And uh, I think with what we saw in the Pacific Northwest earlier this year, actually, that was a little bit of a wake up call for a lot of folks in emergency management agencies across the country that they are involved in this and that they do need to be being more proactive on that. And also the kind of solutions, just the the like immediate response solutions to that are pretty low cost and like pretty manageable for a lot of communities. Like opening a cooling center is not uh, something that is like super complicated to do or super expensive necessarily. Uh, You know, transporting people there, again, not the most difficult thing that we need to do in emergency management. So um, I think like really strong public education campaigns here. And again, kind of building out those plans much more than we have in the past are is kind of a, a low-hanging uh, change that could be made here that could have a really big impact, uh, particularly in terms of death toll numbers.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that there is such a public health lens that we often put on heat waves, and I would have never immediately thought of that as a disaster that needs active management, But even from the educational perspective, like those are campaigns that someone could build out and roll out every summertime or a local government could facilitate. And with the idea of cooling centers, and I'm thinking of Texas this past winter, and there's a whole lot of issues with the grid in Texas. But in general, we know that there's going to be a surge if there is a heat wave and we need to allocate our energy system properly to respond to that. So a lot of it is just truly like, organizing yourself and project management beforehand. And it sounds really silly, I suppose, to break it down in such a basic way to just say, like, plan better. But it kind of feels like from a very high level perspective, like that's what emergency management is. It's like you have to plan better when you know things are going to happen.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, in some ways, emergency management is just not that complicated. Like a lot of it is just very straightforward and it's more of an it's issue complicated. That we just haven't done it. <laughs>
0: It's complicated.
1: I don't know. Some of this planning stuff
0: is just kind of pretty obvious, but
1: um, I don't mean to water it down (laughs) at all. Like I have a lot
0: of respect (laughs) for emergency management, but a lot of it is like, you have the tools, you have the research, like, why aren't we doing this? Yeah, exactly. No. So, you know, this is one of
1: those things in kind of, again, taking like a, a very broad perspective of emergency management here. Emergency management has tended to be very reactive in the US. We have tended to kind of just wait for a disaster to happen and then we deal with it. That's, you know, kind of largely how our policies are built. That was kind of how FEMA was built. This is how a lot of local agencies work. And that taking that reactive approach means we're not investing the way we should in preparedness efforts. Even these basic Things like public education campaigns, writing out cooling center plans, having transportation plans, you know, these are things where we know how to write these plans. For a lot of local agencies, it's an issue of not having enough staff to do it, uh, not having staff that's been trained appropriately in how to do it. Not having the the time because they're so busy doing all of these kind of different tasks across the spectrum of emergency management. And so, one of the things I talk a lot about is this need to build the local capacity of emergency management agencies. So, at the most basic level, every city across the country, most towns, at least at the county level, Have an emergency management agency, and in many places across the country, particularly more rural communities, you have a part time emergency manager. And it is the local fire chief who spends 10 hours a week, you know, kind of checking boxes and copying and pasting an emergency plan from somewhere to meet FEMA's requirements. And frankly, that cannot be happening in the 21st century. Like, the the job title of part-time emergency manager should just not even exist you at least need a full-time person but you really need a whole staff of people who has you know have these different areas of expertise because of how much ground emergency management covers in terms of managing different types of hazards everything from floods to pandemics to cyber attacks i mean these are very different types of hazards in many ways. You need to have a level of expertise there. Um, And then, you know, even just the difference between mitigation and response. These are two very different things. And so you need to have that depth of people in a local agency who's working on all of these different pieces and is doing that consistently and has built relationships in that community. You know, having a plan on the shelf, is fine, whatever, but that's not what actually leads to a better response. We know from research, it's the process of planning. It's bringing different stakeholders together in your community, getting to know one another, talking through what the challenges are, talking through who has what resources, making sure everybody has each other's cell phone numbers, like some pretty basic things here that are driving whether or not we're effective in those responses. So yeah, there is um, so, so much more that we could be doing to prepare for these types of events. But a lot of that gets kind of tied back to this need for a greater investment in our emergency management system.
0: Yeah, I completely see how that can be broken down so succinctly. And it's, it's also interesting that there are so many different types of disasters. We talked about heat waves, but you mentioned something that I really want to get into with you, and that is pandemics, and more specifically, COVID nineteen. And from a very consumer level, I saw emergency management very poorly accomplished, uh, especially in the early days of the pandemic. Especially knowing we have very piecemeal responses, it's state by state, county by county. How are we going to deal with this? So I would love to get into. COVID with you. And and I would love to talk about poor emergency management, if that's also how you see it. So not sure, to put words yeah. in your mouth, but let's talk a little bit about COVID and the early days of COVID. I
1: first started paying attention to COVID in probably around January at the time I was uh, teaching at a school in Nebraska and one of my colleagues specializes in public health and emergency management, which is a great combination. And so she was talking a lot about it. And so we were kind of monitoring what was happening. And it definitely, you know, we kept, there, there kept being these kind of points, which you've probably heard other public health folks explain. There kept being these kind of like markers as we went where it's like, okay, this is like a fork in the road. We can either like you're right. The ship here, we can like change the direction we're headed in or things are going to get worse. And at every single fork in this road that we saw, we did the wrong thing. And by we, I mean, the federal government <laughs> did the wrong thing every single time. And it was just, you know, watching, I describe this in my book as just kind of having this disaster vision of here, are all these different scenarios ranging from like, oh, this is sucks. And it's really bad in certain places, but we like generally have it under control to like even worse than what we saw. And so you have this range of scenarios. And again, as you pass each of those forks in the road, road, it's like, well, that better scenario is out the window now. Okay. It's going to be even worse. Oh no, it's going to be even worse. It was particularly frustrating come the end of February, early March uh, when it came to light that we didn't know how many cases we had in the country and like didn't have like any clue, basically, of how many cases we had in the country. That was, I think, kind of like a turning point of like, there's not a lot of going back at this point. That felt like a very kind of final nail in the coffin. And at that point, your, your mindset shifts a little bit from being really hyper-focused on mitigating that impact, trying to like kind of keep it out to how are we going to respond to this internally, domestically, let alone like the rest of the world, but just domestically, how are we going to respond to this? And that is where kind of immediately anybody in emergency management and public health, I think felt a little bit of of tension, um, not necessarily in like a negative way, but just like, um, I don't even want to say confusion, but just like a little bit of uncertainty between what is public health's role here and what is emergency management role and what it, what are what is the role of governors and mayors and that local government side of things? How is this all going to fit together? How is this response going to unfold? And the public health perspective on that and the emergency management perspective of that and the federal government's perspective and the state level perspective and the local perspective on that, we're all different. And that is not what you want to see at the beginning of a response where literally every second is counting in terms of how bad this is going to be, how many people are going to die because of how you're responding. And so that I think was kind of like those early days of that uncertainty. From an emergency management perspective, it was really, really frustrating because we have a national response framework. We are supposed to have a plan in place for when this happens that we follow. We have this depth of policy that has been developed over the past 50 plus years in the federal government to respond to a pandemic. And certainly those existing plans were not good enough. Even before the pandemic, we knew they were not good enough. But there was, a, there was an infrastructure here to start dealing with this. And the way in which the White House approached it was to not use that infrastructure, to ignore it, to deny that it existed, to send in people who had absolutely no clue what they were doing, no background in pandemics, emergency management, public health, to be making these really you know, operational decisions for the country that kind of led to everything that has happened since?
0: I think something that is really standing out to me right now is the level of collaboration that would have been necessary for a really good emergency response to COVID in January of 2020. It's interesting to say, like, there is a public health perspective. There's an emergency management perspective. There are multiple levels of government that need to get involved. and in everyday life there is not clear passive communication between all of those different groups of people and so perhaps it's like not only a process issue but a collaboration issue you have a lot of political divides you've got a lot of different uh backgrounds that are involved in this like there's a lot more nuance than just doing the right thing for an emergency
1: yeah of course so one of the the greatest findings that we have, the most frequent finding that we have in the disaster research is that there are issues of coordination, collaboration, cooperation, and communication when we are responding to disasters. And particularly, that's true in every single disaster, right? The scale of which those are problems is going to vary from disaster to disaster. A lot of what emergency management is supposed to be doing is to focus on how can we coordinate better through that preparedness stuff that we're doing ahead of time by planning but how can we collaborate better by getting to know the different groups that are going to be involved in a response Um, how are what are what is our plan for communication how are we going to communicate among the thousands and thousands and thousands of agencies and groups that are going to be involved in this response in some way and that in a, a disaster, what I would call like a regular disaster, like the Joplin tornado is so hard to do. When you try and do that during a catastrophe, which is what the pandemic is, which is like the next level up from a disaster, it, it kind of becomes impossible to effectively do this coordination. And that was the kind of scariest part from an emergency management perspective watching this unfold and kind of having some knowledge about how this was going to unfold in a way that the public didn't fully understand was that in looking across the country and realizing, oh, this is going to affect every single state and largely every single state at the same time, our system was not built to do that. Our system was not created for every single state to be in the middle of a response at the same time we had we've never ever had every single emergency management agency in the country activate at once and that actually runs counter to how our system is set up our system is set up so that when a disaster happens in one part of a country of the country people from other states other agencies are coming in to support them right when you when there's a hurricane in florida everybody goes to florida to help right when there's something in california we go to california to help it was built with this expectation that That these disasters were gonna be pretty geographically isolated. And when that is not the case, that's where the whole system breaks down and doesn't work correctly, which is exactly what we've seen during COVID, where that extra help from other states wasn't really there in the way that it typically is, where states were put into a position based on decisions the federal government made to have to compete with one another to try and get the resources that they needed. I mean, this is not this is not typical for a disaster response. And this is where you see, again, that lack of planning, that lack of preparedness. Yeah, the federal government does a lot of planning and preparedness work for responding to disasters, but we do not do that for planning and preparing to respond to catastrophes. And that's why when you look at the kind of the three catastrophes in modern U.S. history, COVID, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure in New Orleans, you see that complete failure of a response in all three of those cases is because these types of events need to be planned for in a different way. The way you approach them the way you manage them is fundamentally different than the way that we manage uh, a Joplin or a Sandy or even a Harvey. Um, And so that kind of was another piece of this that was playing out or has been playing out throughout this entire response.
0: Thinking about the spread of COVID, just the fact that the entire country is being affected at the same time. And then thinking back to earlier, you mentioned the four, I suppose, sectors of emergency management or phases of emergency management. The challenge for me as, again, just a consumer of this information is that with hurricanes, tornadoes, there's an end, and then there's a recovery phase. And the frustrating yeah. part about having a very piecemeal response to a very large catastrophe is that you can't really start any sort of recovery phase. I don't really see America recovering in the way that it likes to claim to recover. And anyway, I think I think the hard part is like, you can't really move through the phases with a catastrophe.
1: Right, exactly. We're We have been in response since January 2020. And we're not, go, you know, we're moving towards recovery, certainly, but we are still very securely within this phase of response, which is a really great observation and something that does make COVID very distinct and is one of the factors that I think um, some people kind of struggled with in terms of thinking about COVID as a disaster, as a catastrophe, is that it does have this like very different characteristic in terms of the actual duration of the response. And so I would say this is a a long duration event um, in terms of, you know, which looks, again, looks very different than a tornado where you have a response that honestly really only lasts about 72 hours. You know, once you're done with search and rescue for a tornado, you've done those life-saving measures, you're moving into recovery, right? You're still, you know, in short-term recovery, recovery lasts for a really long time, lasts for multiple years. But this distinction between response and recovery is, uh, you know, you're you're dealing with kind of two completely different set of challenges, sets of problems, uh, kind of conditions that your community is in. And so, yeah, where people are kind of feeling like, I feel like I've just been stuck for the past year and a half, like we're not moving forward. Um, That part of that is, yeah, we're not, we're, we're not, we're in response still. And yeah, even, you know, thinking ahead to what recovery looks like, even trying to kind of conceptualize what recovery looks like from COVID is really, really challenging, right? Some people, maybe, you know, somebody has had COVID before. Now they're fully vaccinated. They are going back to work again. They're leaving their house. They're able to go out and socialize with their friends because they're living in a place where numbers are low. And like, yeah, they still wear a mask when they go to the grocery store. But like, generally their life feels kind of like, quote unquote, normal again. That person probably feels like, yeah, I'm kind of in recovery now. Like, I'm kind of personally out of it. But when you zoom out and you look at this from like a macro perspective, again, as the country as a whole, let alone internationally, we are not there. (laughs) We're we're very much in response. And so there's also these kind of different levels of analysis that we have to factor in here. And, um, you know, it's complicated. It's not a normal disaster. It is different in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. I even think in the early days of COVID, uh, this time last year, I was living in the state of Georgia and they were not yet doing, I don't know if they ever did, but they were not yet doing, um, free testing. And I think that's nuts because you can't really get an accurate response of how many people have COVID. If you are not giving free testing, like what are, what's the chance that someone who has a feeling they have COVID is going to go and pay $90 after sitting in a drive-thru, like, It is really hard to get accurate numbers on disasters if you are not providing the infrastructure for people to be counted in the first place.
1: Yeah, exactly. That has been persistently, you know, going back to January 2020, has been one of the most persistent problems and kind of one of our biggest downfalls, if not the biggest downfall throughout this entire response, is that at no point have we actually had good data, you know, a lot of people have tried, you know, outside people have kind of come in and and tried a lot of scientists, like, I don't want to minimize their work. But if you are not gathering that data, like in your example, at that, you know, individual local level, all of those numbers that you're pulling up, they are undercounting, you're undercounting at best. uh, And you have all of these local policy decisions or state level policy decisions that are influencing that data from different states. I've been working with a team of researchers, other disaster researchers from across the country since COVID started trying to study COVID kind of from this emergency management perspective and particularly focus on state level policies and how that has affected uh, the actual response and different outcomes in different states. Honestly, just from like a, a science science and, and research perspective, it's been nearly impossible to do because we just don't have good enough data to be able to, you know, make the kinds of conclusions that we want to be able to make from this research because it, you know, the way it was collected, what was not collected, it's super, super complex. And again, especially where you see this response unfold very differently state to state and then even within states uh, from town to town it's you're you're you just have these layers of complexity that going back to this issue of coordination and collaboration it it just it it sends us into this realm of kind of being impossible to effectively coordinate and effectively respond
0: absolutely absolutely last thing I'm going to say about like poor data and, um, and long, long long-term response is on the example you gave of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, largest power outage we saw in American history, I believe it was eight months. The island of Puerto Rico did not have power. And a lot of that was just, I mean, frankly, like funding from the federal government, acknowledgement from the federal government that there was a disaster happening and people needed help. And then a lot of critical response facilities had to be developed and opened, frankly, by regular community members. And it was people opening up their businesses to their community so that there were people charging phones and going to the pharmacy and using refrigerators. And it falls on a community level when it truly shouldn't. So I also feel like there's this level of responsibility for your people that has to happen at the state level and at the federal level, this kind of sense of like, this sense of like you were elected to protect them and you were elected to act in their best interest. And if it is regular community members who have to step up in the response and recovery phases, that is a whole different level of trust that needs to be built between people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, in terms of holding politicians accountable, we barely, barely ever do that in disasters. And it is kind of nuts, frankly, Because we, you know, after a disaster happens, you hear this narrative from politicians, usually the ones who are at fault, uh, that say something along the lines of, no, we couldn't have, we didn't know this was going to happen. Nobody could have predicted this. We, this was a natural disaster. This was an act of God. There's nothing we could have done about. Nobody knew this was going to happen. And that is almost like 99.9% of the time, a complete and total lie. You can almost always go back into emergency management plans. You can find articles written by journalists. You can hear activists, you find activists who are warning about this, where they say exactly what has happened, exactly what has unfolded, right? You can go to FEMA right now and look up their, what we call the FIRA, which is the threat assessment for the country. And there is a pandemic scenario in there that was written pre-2020, that looks exactly like what has happened across the country, right? These are known disasters, known potential catastrophes. That is not, we know what can happen. We know what these scenarios are. That's what emergency managers spend a lot of their time doing. And that is not convenient for politicians because they look at those, they know that they should have acted. They know that they didn't act. They know that it was policy decisions that they made, that their predecessors made that led to these disasters happening. And if they don't deflect that onto nature, deflect that onto God or some supernatural being, then they, it becomes much more clear that they are the ones who are responsible for these events that have happened, right? Again, important to note here, this distinction between the actual hazard and the disaster, right? that you know, they didn't necessarily cause a hurricane to go towards Puerto Rico, right? But because of how the federal government has treated Puerto Rico, the history of colonization, the racist response from the White House when it happened, all of these other factors, right, that created the scenario in Puerto Rico, that created the extent of the impacts, the extent of the need, the length of time that, like you said, that it took to get power back on um, to you know you know they're still very much in the midst of recovery in terms of rebuilding and whatnot. And so there is this real incentive from those politicians to deflect as much as they can, right so that they aren't responsible. And the unfortunate thing here is that they almost always get away with it. <laughs> there is a real kind of lack of any kind of long-term accountability from the public. Uh, particularly from media and the law to hold public officials accountable for their actions or their failure to act or the, you know, decisions that they made during a response that led to loss of life, loss of property, the disaster that unfolded. One thing that I, this is like, I'm not necessarily a very optimistic person, (laughs) but this is one thing that I do always feel like a little bit of hope on is that I do think many more people are beginning to really understand this just in the past few years. I think between the pandemic and between the many climate related disasters that we've had, I think the general public, but particularly like folks who are doing climate activism and like environmental justice activist type work kind of in those spaces, I think that there is a much kind of clearer understanding now, even even among journalists and particularly like disaster journalists, people who are covering disasters regularly, that that disasters are policy decisions. that these are not these natural events. You see this huge pushback growing against using the term natural disaster. And this is why, right? Because it's, you know, obscuring this human culpability, this human responsibility. And I think because of the pandemic, because of this context of climate change, um, I'm, I'm like hopeful that this is one of those things that is going to start shifting and that there's going to be a push for a greater accountability on politicians, um, kind of hopefully before, but at least in the wake of disasters.
0: Wow. That was so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like that's a great place to leave the audience. Samantha, thank you so much for joining me. I feel not only educated, but like enlightened, which I think is different from just being truly educated. I feel like I have a very new appreciation, not just for management and management specialists like yourself, but just again, like framing again, the word natural disaster. Why do we say that? It forces you to be really critical of these systems we live in. So thank you again for, for joining me. This has been great.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to today's conversation, rewinding to our disasterology episode with Dr. Samantha Montano. Again, this episode was originally published December of 2021 under the title, Disasters Aren't Natural, Managing Catastrophes and the Climate Crisis. I hope you learned something. If you did, don't forget to share it with a friend, share it in the family group chat, on your Instagram story, you know the deal. And if you've stayed this long, rate and review the show, double check you're subscribed. all the best things. In the show notes, you will find links to our weekly newsletter, and you will also find a space to sign up for our community spotlight if you would like to share a project or a special experience on sustainability, on your eco-chic lifestyle with the eco-chic community. You can find that, again, all in the show notes as well as all my social links. And with that, I hope you have a really great rest of your day, and I will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.